Good morning, Redeemer Church. You know, through the years, I've had the privilege and really the joy to be able to go hiking a lot and have hiked Chiha and hiked the Smoky Mountains and kind of been on some of the Appalachian Trail and uh, stayed up at the top of Mount LeConte in the Smokies up above Gatlinburg and uh, been to Yosemite and hiked a number of mountains and on top of, oh, what is that big rock uh, in Yosemite? Yes, Half Dome, and um, never been out of the, I actually have hiked in the Andes Mountains, as a matter of fact, for about a week, and seen some amazing mountains there, but never been to like Kilimanjaro, or Everest, or uh, Mount Rainier, but if, uh, if you think about all of the wonderful mountain ranges in the world, and think about the, the heights of the various ranges, and the beauty that you can see both um, at that level, and then as you look down um, into the valleys, um, I feel like this morning that, that we are climbing on one of the greatest mountain peaks of all of Scripture, uh, the Mount Everest or the Mount Kilimanjaro of, of Scripture, and, and it's both thrilling and intimidating, uh, frankly. And so um, I'm both excited about it and a bit uh, nervous. So I want us to go to the Lord and, and ask Him to help us take in the beauty of this mountain range today and, and be affected by it for the rest of our lives. That's, that's our goal. So uh, would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we want to approach you today with gratitude for the greater David, Jesus Christ. We want to approach you today with great thrill and excitement that not only do we know that, that Jesus is the king who is above all kings and is the greater Davidic king, but we can know him and we can experience his love and, and we can experience his reign in our lives and in our hearts, in our families and in our church and in our communities as they're reached for his glory. And so we pray, Father, that in these moments that we have to open up your precious word, that you would speak to us in a powerful way, that you would thrill our hearts, that you would engage our minds, that you would equip us with truth, and that you would empower us to be the, the ambassadors for our good, great, glorious, risen King, Jesus. In his name we pray this. Amen. Last week, we did in fact see that Jesus is the perfect king. He is the perfect king who sacrifices himself on the cross. We, we looked at the crucifixion in great detail where we saw the crucifixion of his body and the inscription of his royalty. This is the king of the Jews. We saw the division of his clothes that the that the soldiers divided up in order that they could have kind of some paraphernalia from this event. We saw the provision made for his mother where he says, woman, behold your son. And then he looks at John and says, behold your mother. We saw the completion of his mission in which he not only said, I thirst, but then he said, it is finished. We saw the handling of his body by the soldiers, by them not breaking a single bone in his body, but piercing into his side where blood and water was poured out. And, and then we, we contemplated the significance of his work. And that ushers us right into John chapter 19, 
And beginning in verse 38, we will read all the way down through chapter 20, verse 18. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away Jesus' body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, If you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. For I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, 
I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord! And that he had said these things to her. Brothers and sisters, I I want us to make a few observations of John's account before we just look at the, the scene as it unfolds. John could have written the account of the resurrection of Jesus, I suppose, in a hundred different ways, but he chose this way. He chose this manner. He he decided to to place emphasis on certain details and leave other details out. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see a variety of other details that John doesn't include. But when you read those other accounts, you will also see that John gives accounts that they don't include. And we have to ask the question, why? And what is his emphasis? And what is he trying to do? And I have no doubt whatsoever that one thing that John is absolutely trying to do is to help us feel the emotions of the people who had experienced the death of their king and who had experienced the the desperation and devastation of the king that they had loved and given their lives to. And not the least of which is a testimony of the, that he wants us to feel that is notice how many times he just uses the word tomb. I mean, in the first 13 verses, he uses the word tomb 11 times. 11 times he says the tomb, the tomb, a tomb, a tomb, the tomb, the tomb. It's just, I just find that important for us to see how many times that he is saying that they put the dead body of Jesus in a tomb, a place, a final resting place for dead people. I mean, think about it. A tomb is a place where living people put dead people. It's a symbol of mortality, a symbol of finality. It's, it's a visible and physical declaration of human frailty and human fragility. It's a clear testimony. That, that the events in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell and God said, you will be cursed and death is a reality, it is a testimony that what God has said is true and that people are broken and they die and that there are lasting universal consequences to sinning against God. A tomb is a place where hope and happiness cease to exist. It's a place of death and darkness and emptiness. And John says 11 times that they put Jesus, the king, in a tomb. I want us to make another observation as well, and that is just the reference of Mary Magdalene to Jesus as Lord. This is prior to her knowing that he is raised from the dead. She says he's the Lord. She says he's my Lord. And then she says he's the Lord. Mary looked at Jesus as her master 
whom she looked to for direction in life, for salvation in life, for deliverance in the life that she once had lived. She had been full of demons and Jesus had cast those out. And from that day forward, she had looked to him as her master. And she identifies him as such even before the reality of his resurrection comes to play. That is the power of the person of Jesus and the ministry that he brought to the people who surrounded him. Now church, let's walk through this scene. Let's walk through these, what's going on here, because what we see is really four realities that, that demonstrate that Jesus is king, that he is the king. And so let's look in verses 38 to 42 of chapter 19 at the unexpected burial. It's an unexpected burial. Jesus is dead. He's hanging up on the cross. And if he were like other criminals, if he were like other crucified criminals, there would be two things that would happen to him. He would be, he would be left up on the cross for vultures to come and pick away at his body and eat him all the way down to his bones and then be taken down by Roman soldiers, carried off into the, the trash heap that was massive in nature, the, the trash dump, was like the trash dump that we have in Calhoun County. It was huge and big and much larger than even this building. And what would happen is they would take those crucified bodies and throw them on the trash heap that burned constantly right outside the city of Jerusalem and the bones and the remaining flesh would be burned up so as not ever to be remembered or thought of again. That would be the normal result of any crucified criminal on the cross. And one might expect to see that, but not here, because Joseph of Arimathea, a man whom we know nothing about prior to this account, we really know nothing about after this account, comes to Pilate and requests that he can take the body of Jesus down and, and do something with it. Joseph of Arimathea is a wealthy man. He's a religious man. He's a powerful man. And he's an influential man. He, he is a part of the ruling class, the Sanhedrin, as it were, of, of, the, of, the, of the people of the Jews. And here he is, because he has clout among the Jews, he also has clout among the Roman governor, and he requests, hey, can I do something with the body? And we don't know Pilate's motivation. It's very possible because, because he didn't have any, any stake in the game. Pilate didn't. And maybe to get another little jab back at the Jews, he lets Joseph of Arimathea take the body down. And, and he does. And, and who joins Joseph of Arimathea in this? Yet but another Jewish leader, a Pharisee, a, a ruling class, an influential member, a teacher of the Jews actually comes and helps him. This is shocking. This is absolutely shocking. Because we have, we've already heard about Nicodemus. In what chapter of John did we first see Nicodemus? Chapter 3. And John is very careful to tell us, not only here, but also back in chapter 3, that Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee and a ruling member of the Jews and a teacher of the Scriptures to all of the Jewish nation, he came to Jesus by what? By night. By night. And there is something to that. It's because not only was it physically night, but it was also spiritually night for Nicodemus because he did not want to be seen as someone who is going and talking to Jesus, much less trying to learn from Jesus. And in that conversation that, that he has with Jesus at night 
under the cloak of darkness. He's asking Jesus questions and basically saying, hey, we know you're from God. You can't be but from God because of all these powerful things that you you do. And Jesus just turns him on his head and he says, listen, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And he's like, born again? I can't enter into my mother's womb, can I? And and he says, listen, you're a teacher of the scriptures and you don't know what it means to be born again? And he gives this illustration about the wind and how the Holy Spirit is like the wind and you can't see it, but, but you know that it's true and it's real. And and this is what happens is that people are born again by the Spirit of God and they become new creatures. It's what we call regeneration. And Nicodemus learned that truth that day. We find out again in chapter 7 that Nicodemus is still around. He's hanging with the Jews and and the Jews are trying to condemn Jesus in chapter 7. And Nicodemus speaks up as a ruling member and says, hey, maybe we should hear him out before we judge him. Maybe we should listen to him before we condemn him. And so we get this hint that Nicodemus is a follower of Jesus possibly here. And then now we see at at the most embarrassing moment to be attached to Jesus. That there was when he was, when his body was on the planet, Nicodemus, who had originally come to Jesus by night, now goes to Jesus in the light of day, as it were, and attaches himself to the crucified and killed and murdered king. I think that's something for us to see this loyalty and affection and desire to honor this king on behalf of both. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who had a whole lot to lose. Now look at verse 41. I'm sorry, verse 40. They didn't just take the body, and of course they didn't throw it on the trash heap, and they didn't just toss it away somewhere, but they treated it with the utmost respect and the utmost reverence. They took his body, and they took these linen strips fine linen, costly, expensive strips, and began to to wrap those strips around the body of Jesus, which would be fitting of an, an honorable burial. And at the same time, they were taking the spices, both the myrrh and the aloes, that they mixed together, and they smelled really sweet and really rich and, and in a sense, really dignified. And, and they would layer the 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 ointment over the strips as they continued to bind the body of Jesus so as to create as much sweetness as possible so that his body would smell as good as possible as long as possible. And what do they do with it? In verse 41, they actually go to the place right next to Golgotha in a garden. And in the garden, there was this new tomb. And the other gospel writers tell us that it actually belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And no body had ever been put in there. It was brand new, unoccupied. And so they put Jesus in that tomb. And this burial is a burial of the the highest honor and the greatest dignity that these two individuals could possibly give. Is it not ironic that the men who followed Jesus and lived um, beside Him and with Him and pledged their allegiance to the very end are nowhere to be found in the burial process but two Jews who have everything to lose, are right there giving this man a burial that is on the level of being buried in Arlington National Cemetery with the highest of military honors. That's irony. And so they put Jesus in the tomb. It's an unexpected burial by all accounts. Before we go to verse 1 of the next chapter, 
let's, let's just pause for a moment and get into the mind and the heart of Joseph and Nicodemus. Just think about what they had to lose. Think about what they were surrendering as they honored Jesus of Nazareth. Think about what they were risking by way of their own dignity, their own position, their own power, their own clout, and their own political future. They're risking everything in order to give this man, Jesus of Nazareth, an honorable burial. Okay, let's go now from an unexpected burial to an unoccupied tomb, verses 1 through 10. So Mary Magdalene, who is a faithful, loyal follower of Jesus, she comes on Sunday. What's interesting is that between chapter 19, verse 42, and chapter 20, verse 1, all of Friday night, all of Saturday morning, all the way through noon, Saturday night into Sunday morning has transpired and we get nothing there. And it makes us, it begs the question, what were they doing all day Saturday? What was going on in their mind and heart? What was going on in their emotions? What was Mary thinking? What was Mary the mother of Jesus thinking? What were the disciples doing? What, what were all of these people doing? Well, we know for one thing that the Jewish people who had gathered from all over the Roman Empire had come in. They're celebrating. They're enjoying the, the, the goodness of what they consider their God, and they, are, they have forgotten Jesus at this point because now they are celebrating in this great enjoyment of the feasts and um, all of the festivals and celebrations and worship services. It is Sabbath for them. But for those who had pledged allegiance to Jesus, it had to be the darkest of days. But here... On the first day, on Sunday, Mary Magdalene comes before, before the sun's even out. This, this gives us a, a, a picture of her, her anxiety and her anticipation and, and, and her, her confusion and, she, and her allegiance and her love and her loyalty. This gives us a picture of, of what, it, what it's like to be desperate for somebody. And she's desperate. And so she gets to the tomb and she sees that it's, it's been taken away. Now, Grave robbing was a really big deal back in those days. Um, oftentimes, uh, people would, would rob the graves because, just like in today, people who died were buried with um, gold and silver and jewels and things like that. And so if a grave was not going to be protected, the lowest of the low in a society would just go and they would take the gold and they would strip the bracelets and the rings and everything else and take them and either go sell them or keep them and they could, they could live. That, that's, and that's what Mary thinks has happened. She sees that the, that the, tomb, uh, the tombstone has been rolled away and she's like, oh no, they've taken, they've taken Jesus. And so she runs back to Simon Peter and, and John. And we know it's John because we've already kind of done the math in previous sermons and in previous lessons that he is the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And he doesn't name his name out of a sense of, of humility because he doesn't want to say me, myself, I, I was there, you know, all of that. But, but even in the humility church, I'm sorry, if I'm wrong about this, it's, it's okay because this is not a point. But even in John's humility, there is a sense in which he has to assert to everybody who ever reads this letter that he's a better athlete and a faster runner than Peter. Do you see? See that? 
three times he says that he outran Peter to the tomb. It's like, oh man. But uh, I mean, he's a man after my own heart. Uh, you know, I mean, even in the midst of even in the midst of tragedy, he's got to, to to give everything he's got to get there. So anyway, they're both running together, and he outruns Peter, and he's he gives us a sense of the two different personalities because he gets there first. But he stoops down because the tomb is likely, it's, it's a large tomb, and when you walk in, then it'll, it'll be large inside, but it's probably only an opening of maybe three foot tall, starting at the bottom. Um, three foot tall, maybe two or three feet wide. So you have to stoop down to look inside. And they would have had to stoop, Joseph and Nicodemus would have had to stoop and get on their hands and knees in order to bring the body of Jesus in. Nevertheless, he stoops down and looks in and and he sees the linen cloths in perfect formation, but obviously there's no body there. But it's like he it's like he feels I don't know if he feels odd or weird or what what's going on in his mind, but he just pops right back up. And then Peter comes in and he looks down and he stoops and immediately, because Peter is Peter, he just goes right into the tomb and he looks and, and he's like, there's no body. And, you know, you see the two different personalities, but then you see the declaration. And, and so what, what, what is going to transpire here? What is going on in the mind and the heart? What wills are turning for both John and Peter? And if you look down at the text, they see that there's no way that somebody has unwrapped the body. I mean, it's in perfect formation. And it's just laying there. And they see the, the, the head cloth that was covering over the face of Jesus perfectly folded up or rolled up, as it were, in a different place. If it was, if it was a grave robber, there's no way they would have stripped him of those linens and then took him out. Number one, the linens and everything was expensive. They could have used those again. Number two, why would you possibly do that if you're going to be carrying a body away? That would, that, that would make absolutely no sense. And so they realize at that moment that Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. And John says, even though he didn't recognize the Old Testament scriptures that pointed toward the resurrection of a Messiah, he believed that Jesus was resurrected from the dead simply by what he had seen. And so did Peter. And so they didn't know what to do, obviously, because what they did was just simply go back to their homes. Verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes. And John is believing that Jesus is risen from the dead, he says. But Mary, the one who had gone to tell Peter and John, is still at the tomb. And apparently there was no real interaction between John and Peter and and Mary here, because she is standing now outside the tomb, and she's weeping. Now, church, I want to ask you a question. Why do we weep? What, What brings on weeping? Sadness. Now, now I'll say this. I've been sad multiple times in the last couple of months, but I've not wept. So, so sadness brings on weeping, but there's, a, there's, there's something in addition to just mere sadness. Loss, yes, that's right. A feeling of emptiness, right? Sadness brought on by a feeling of not being able to change circumstances and not being able to get back something that we really wanted. We could go deeper into this. We could, we could go deeper into But we need to realize that 
that Mary's weeping is because she feels like there is something permanently changed about her life and about her future that nothing can alter it. And so here she is weeping, and that word weeping means weeping. She, she, has, she has tears coming down her face. She was wailing audibly and naturally and doesn't know what to do with herself because of the loss that she's feeling in this moment. And I think what she's likely thinking is, okay, my Lord has been killed. And that, that doesn't make sense to me because he walked on water. He actually raised dead people to life. He calmed the raging sea. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children with five pieces of bread and two loaves. He made blind people see and deaf people hear hear, and and lame people walk. It doesn't make sense to me that he's dead, but not now only is he not only dead, but now he's missing. And who knows what what they're doing with his body? Who knows how they're dishonoring him? And now I can't even come and, and mourn and grieve properly. That's why she's weeping. And so, look at verse 11. She too stoops down to look into the tomb. And she sees two angels in white sitting where Jesus was supposed to be. And they say, woman, sign of dignity, sign of respect. Woman, why are you weeping? And she says, they've taken away my Lord. Implied the grave robbers or the soldiers or somebody with malicious intent has taken away my Lord. The one who has delivered me out of the darkness of my sin and the depravity of my my demon possession. And and I don't know where they've put him. And all I want to do is see him and I want to honor him. And I want to to put more myrrh. I I want him to have dignity even in his death, she's basically saying. And she turns around, verse 14, and sees Jesus. Now, there is some sense in which there are, there are scales over her eyes. There is a, apparently a presence of Jesus in his resurrected form that she cannot see him clearly. We know that uh, his identity clearly, and we know that that's a reality because there were two men who later go on to walk down the road with Jesus, and they have no idea that it's Jesus they're talking to. We know that there's something different about Jesus because unless we misunderstand the text, that Jesus actually can walk through doors that are closed. There's something different about the, the resurrected body of Jesus that was that was uh, um, unique to his, from his his pre-resurrected body, but she sees Jesus and she thinks he's the gardener, and he says to her, "Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking?" And she says, "Sir, if you've done something with him, would you just tell me and let me go to him and honor him the way that his life deserves to be honored?" And that's when Jesus speaks her name. And that's when we, as followers of Jesus, need to remember that he said in his teaching that I am the good shepherd and that my sheep know my voice and that when I call them, they recognize me and follow me. Mary 
recognizes not the look of Jesus, but the voice of Jesus. And her heart swells with gladness and celebration, and she recognizes how glorious this moment is. It is better than she ever could have imagined. And she says to him, not Lord, not Master, not God, but in the most intimate designation that she could think because that's what she called him rabbi teacher and they are brought together in union and she falls at his feet john doesn't tell us that explicitly but notice he says don't cling to me that could also be translated stop clinging to me that is very likely that she fell at his feet and grabbed his ankles and she's just so overjoyed and humbled and amazed at this fact that he's resurrected from the dead. And then he says, look, don't cling to me now because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Boy, if there is, if there is not just an amazing um, significance to this to this really this prohibition of Jesus for her to, to wrap her arms around him because you remember he earlier had said, listen, I have to go, but don't worry, something greater is coming. My helper, the helper, is going to come to you. This is amazing. She wants to cling to him, and he says, no, you don't need to cling to me because I'm going to ascend, and when I ascend, I'm actually going to come to you, and I'm not going to be around you. I'm going to be in you, and I'm not going to be sometimes before you. I'm going to always be possessing you so that you will never know loneliness apart from me again. Don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. And then he says, now this is, this is both beautiful and amazing and perplexing. Mary, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our elder brother, but Jesus tells us that he is our elder brother. Like, look at the both, it's not just mere humility of Jesus. This is the dignity of every child of God who puts their, play, their faith in Jesus. Like, we, we can fall at Jesus' feet and say, my Lord and my God. But we also can go up to Jesus and embrace Him and call Him our brother because in rising from the dead, He rose as a man. And in defeating death, He defeated death as a man. And, and, and as, as ascending to the Father, He ascended not only as God, but also as man, as one of us. So now He calls us our bro His brothers and sisters and we call Him our brother. It's amazing because He precedes us and He goes before us to experience everything that we ourselves are going to experience one day in glorification and resurrection. And so in verse 18, Mary Magdalene goes and announces, I've seen the Lord. That's an unimaginable scene. I don't know that I even said that. So it was an unexpected burial, an unoccupied tomb, and an unimaginable scene. Church, I want to bring this together by having a fourth reality here, an unconquerable power. 
an unconquerable power. So as we see the the scenes unfold, as we see the unexpected burial, the unoccupied tomb, and the unimaginable scene, we need to bring it together to say, well, what what is John doing here? What what, what does he want us to see? What does he want us to feel? And first of all, I'll say that that I believe that that if John were here, he would say that, that Jesus is the risen king who transforms the life of every person who believes in him. He's the risen king. Last last week, he was the perfect king who sacrificed his body and his life. This week, he is the risen king who transforms the lives of everyone who puts their faith in him. He transforms the lives of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and Mary Magdalene and Simon Peter and John. He will transform our lives as we put our faith in him as the resurrection. But this is what he wants. He wants us to feel the emotional difference. Channel with me here, church. Track with me. He wants us to feel the emotional difference between having a dead and dishonored king and having a risen and reigning king. He wants us to feel that difference. Oh yeah, I had a king. He was awesome. But he was crucified. He's dead. And he had a dishonorable burial. Versus, yeah, I have a king. And yes, he died, but he is risen and he reigns today, defeating death and darkness and hell and sin and Satan. So this is is what John wants us to do. He, He wants us to understand that Jesus transforms us. And so if you're taking notes right now, I'd love for you to write... I'd I'd, I'd love for you to write some things down right here because this is, I want you to feel this today. And if you don't feel it today, meditate on it tonight. Meditate on it this week and, and understand the transforming power of our risen King because this is what He does. He transforms you from weeping to worshiping. Mary is weeping. She's at a loss. She's empty. She she feels completely hopeless. She feels completely futureless. She doesn't know what to do. She's weeping. And then she sees Jesus and she doesn't know, but then she hears the voice of Jesus. And all of a sudden, she goes to Him and bows down to Him and worships Him because He has defeated death and sin and hell. Moves her from weeping to worshiping. And I will tell you that there is much to weep about in this life. There is much that will bring us to a place of weeping. I have no doubt that I will weep many times between today and the day that I die. I have no doubt because life is full of darkness and sadness and emptiness and death and tragedy and trauma. It is full of all of that. I have no doubt that I will weep multiple times for however long God gives me on this earth. But this is what I know, that He will always, by His grace, restore me to a place of worshiping Him. Knowing that His power triumphs over whatever darkness and tragedy and trauma that I feel in the moment. Because as Jesus is risen from the dead, not only will I experience resurrection, but anybody who puts their faith in Jesus will experience resurrection. So that if somebody that I love greatly goes before me, it's okay. Because we'll be reunited at the feet of Jesus one day. And we will get to cling to Him. He also transforms you from devastation to declaration, from devastation to declaration. I also get this from Mary. She's devastated, no doubt confused about what to do, and so she goes to the tomb because she doesn't know what else to do. 
What, what is she going to do? Stay in the house? What is she going to do? Start cooking food on a Sunday? What is she going to do? Just get on with her life? She doesn't know what to do. So she's going to go to the tomb and she's going to somehow try to honor Jesus in the best way that she can outside the tomb. She doesn't even know. But she's devastated. But then in experience the resurrection of Jesus, she not only worships Jesus, but now she goes and declares Jesus. She runs to the disciples and she says, I've seen the Lord. Like, man, she goes... She goes from, from, you know, totally lonely to totally full, totally empty to totally full, and in, in the moment of her eyes beholding the resurrection of her Lord. And she declares Jesus' resurrection. And I will tell you, if we had no hope, if, if, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then church, please, don't go tell anybody about Jesus this week. Because I will tell you, we are the most pitiable people on the planet if he didn't rise from the dead. And and we are fools, and we are sending people down a road that that they will never find what they're truly looking for if he's not risen from the dead. We might as well be selling oceanfront property in Arizona if he's not risen from the dead. But if he's risen from the dead... Our devastation needs to turn into declaration and tell everybody that we have the key to human life and we have the promise of eternal life. And if you put your faith in him, then you will know the peace that comes from believing in someone who has conquered death itself. All right, let me give you a a couple more. He transforms you not only from weeping to worshiping, from devastation to declaration, but from panic to peace. We live in a world and we have hearts and we have inclinations that that easily produce panic. Anxiety, worry, fear, they're all real because, frankly, human life is not only hard, but it's also got a lot of significant problems in it. And... This is just a fact. Car wrecks happen. People are abused. Folks are murdered. Drinking water is terrible and ultimately can sometimes could kill you or give you cancer depending on what groups have put something in the water. Like, I could go on and on. Like, it's a really difficult life. Like, the, the, the reality that there are terrible things that happen in this world on a daily basis is not something that we need to just stick our head in the sand and just pretend like it's not happening and hope it doesn't happen to us. It's real. But we got two options. We can be just like the world who has no hope and panic about it and hedge ourselves in and do everything that we can not to risk anything, not to get out of the house as much as we need to, travel at the safest times, don't go anywhere that is quote-unquote sketchy so that we can be as safe as we possibly can so that we cannot panic in those circumstances. Or... We can possess the peace that surpasses human understanding. The peace that comes from knowing that Jesus of Nazareth is the King of kings and Lord of lords and has defeated death itself. And even if we are killed in a car wreck or die in a plane crash or get abused or have some type of harm done to us because we're risking ourselves for the sake of the gospel, 
He is still risen from the dead. He is not in the tomb. We can believe him, we can trust him, and we can go and declare him to a world who needs the same peace that we've got. Write these uh, couple, two or three more down. I won't, I won't go into detail on them because they're, they, they may overlap. He takes us from fear to faith. He takes us from calamity to courage. He takes us from emptiness to fullness. And finally, he takes us from desperation to celebration. From desperation to celebration. And this is what I'm sure of. There are people in this building who have been desperate this week. Physically desperate, maybe financially desperate, relationally desperate, parentally desperate, desperate, don't know what to do. Hands in the air, I don't know what to do. I'm struggling, I, I, need, I need help, I'm desperate. And desperation is okay, because we live in a broken world, and we're broken people, and we're waiting to, to experience fullness and wholeness one day when Jesus returns. But what What Jesus does in His being raised from the dead is He takes us from the emptiness of hopeless desperation and He takes us to the fullness of hopeful celebration so that every Sunday, not just Easter Sunday, but every Sunday we can gather together on the very day that Jesus rose from the dead and we can say, our lives are in your hands. You've defeated all of the problems that we have um, finally and fully and we may experience them now, but one day we will not. And we will not only behold you, we will be like you. And in doing so, all of our desperation will melt and all we will know is complete and total wholeness like you. That's what the resurrection accomplishes for us. That's how he transforms us as he raises from the dead.